All right, so by way of review, what was probably the most, uh, what did we spend the most time on last week? What was the most important, maybe, thing that I wanted you to remember or think about when it came to the study of angelology? Not necessarily what's the most important thing to know about angels, but what's the most important thing about the study of angelology? Anybody remember? We went through that whole long list at the beginning of the history of everything. What was kind of the big takeaway from that? If they were made, oh, that's the second big takeaway. That's about angels themselves. What about the study of angelology, though? There is correct. A definitive answer is missing. There is no definitive answer. Um. There, are, there have been a lot of evolving beliefs over the history of the church in terms of the details, anyway, about angels. There's never been a time where the church did not believe in angels. That would be patently ridiculous as long as you at least subscribe to some level of, uh, bibli- of like biblical truth, since angels are all over the Bible. Uh, only the most liberal of theologians will dismiss them entirely as some sort of symbolism for something else. But otherwise, all the details about them, including, as she just mentioned here, whether or not they are made in the image of God, all of those kinds of details have been debated and argued over, and uh, theologians have gone one direction and the next uh, over the course of all of church history. So we're not going to really be able to come to a definitive answer last week or today about all of this stuff. I'm simply mostly presenting to you all the different points of view uh, just for your study and edification. It is also interesting, though, we had a conversation at the end of uh, after class last week about how a few of us about how it's interesting how uh, God tells us a lot about angels, but not enough to give us the definitive answer, right? There's a lot of things that God tells us almost nothing about. Um, and it's pure, it's in sort of the, we, you know, there's, there's a hint of it and we don't really know. So, for example, like, what is heaven like? There's only the hint of hints in terms of what eternal life is like. The Bible just doesn't really describe much of it at all. Um, and from that, we can, inf- we can infer that we since we believe that the Bible is sufficient and complete, that we just simply don't need to know in this earthly life, right, about those details. Um, and then for something like, say, where we really, it's really important that we need to know, of course, the Bible has tons and tons of information about it, say, for example, the plan of salvation, right? Obviously, the most crucial thing for us to know, and there's lots and lots and lots in the Bible about the plan of salvation, But angelology kind of falls in this weird little middle gray area where the angels appear a lot. We get told a bunch about what they do. Uh, They seem like they're important, but God doesn't really give us a lot of the definitive answers on this. The other uh, branch of systematic theology, I think, that falls in this category, uh, which we're going to do in a few weeks, is eschatology. Right, that would be the other one, where we hear a whole lot about future things, but not enough to actually be able to say this is for sure how it's going to go down. So um, angelology and eschatology kind of fall in this, in this camp. 
All right, so, yes, so we did, we did spend a good bit of time about whether or not angels are made in the image of God, and that's a good place for us to uh, come back and review very briefly, because we're going to get into now fallen angels after this. But if you remember that when we were thinking about uh, angelology, uh, I'm sorry, when we were thinking about whether or not they were made in the image of God, we went through the list right, of things that when Andrew had done two weeks ago about, uh, or three weeks ago now, about man in the image of God, we said, like, okay, well, what did it mean when we said that man was in the image of God? Uh, the biggest, there was a whole list, and we talked about the existence of a spirit or soul in a man, uh, that, we, that that soul has simplicity and in immortality and invisibility, and we're like, well... Angels are spirits that are simple and invisible and immortal. So, okay, check. Uh, Also, uh, man has intellect and will, right, and the ability to discern and make decisions. And we certainly see examples of angels doing the same. So, okay, angels have will. Angels can make decisions. Check. Uh, We said that man in the image of God has morality and integrity, right, righteousness, and at least are capable of righteousness and capable of holiness, Angels, check, right? So, so far, angels are keeping up. But, uh, it, uh, we, and, and just from those three alone, there are some theologians, John Calvin including, who say, who conclude from this that angels are made in the image of God, that it's not an exclusive thing to just man. But, Burkhoff, Disagrees, Burkhoff had two more boxes to check. Uh, and he mentions about man's position of having dominion over the earth. And that man has a body that's an organ or a tool to exercise said dominion. And then many other theologians keep going with the list and they say that, you know, another part, the two other things that make us imagio dei is that we have creativity like our creator. We like to make and shape and invent. And we also have relationality in that we are made to relate to God in a very unique way. And that unique way, of course, in the Bible is anthropomorphized in those familial terms of God is our father and we are his children. Uh, Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Right, Jesus is also described as our older brother, where the he's the 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 eldest, the first heir, and we are the joint heirs. Okay, so we have dominion, creativity, and relationality. Angels, no. Right, angels. There's not much in scripture that angels do any of these. Now, very interestingly, hang on, when I want to get to my point. Very interestingly. Uh, the mediev- there was a medieval theologian argument, which I think holds a lot of water, which is that Satan's rebellion was rooted in envy over these three. And that what he and his demons do now is a perverse twisting of these three that they can't do, that they were not gifted to do. They are trying and in some way having wicked dominion over the kingdoms of the earth. They are inventing, they're being creative, they're inventing false teachings. 
and also they are establishing fake relationships with people through false religions. Okay? So, let's talk, that's my segue into the false, or the fallen angels. Alright? The fallen angels. Because, um, when we talk about the fact that there's, we certainly know that there are holy angels, and we also see evidence of and description of in the Bible of fallen angels, of demons. Uh, you'll remember that we did have one other interesting little problem that Calvin and Luther tried to grab us with, which was um, that they both asserted that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not refer to Satan and the fallen. All right, that they do not refer to Satan and the fallen. Can somebody please read for me Ezekiel 28? So that whole section, I didn't have Mark read the whole thing. It's actually a whole all of 11 through 19, but there's a pretty good highlight. There are many theologians uh, who, and before Luther and Calvin, all through medieval time, uh, and the church fathers all picked up on that, and also picked up on Isaiah 14 as uh, as a prophecy against Satan, right? A description of Satan's fall and a prophecy against him. What was Luther and Calvin's problem with that, though? Look up at the top of Ezekiel 28, Mark. What's like the heading for this section? It's a lament over the king of Tyre. A lament over the king of Tyre. It doesn't say lament, and, and the first few verses, right, specifically call out the king of Tyre. Now flip back to Ezekiel 27 for us, Mark. What's going on in Ezekiel 27? A lament for Tyre. A lament for Tyre. The city, right? Keep going back. 26. Prophecy against Tyre. Yeah. Right? So, like, there's this whole long section where he's very clearly dealing with the earthly kingdom of Tyre, which was a real kingdom that was a real enemy and a real thorn in the side of the people of Israel. All right? And Isaiah 14, that, that particular one prophecy, um, comes in the midst of a whole bunch of little oracles against all sorts of different kings who surrounded Israel. In the same way, it's not against the king of Tyre, I think it's against the king of Babylon, um, in Isaiah, um, but like it's it's surrounded by all these other like and against the king of Egypt and against the king of the, the, the Moab and the king of right like and so it's like right and so Luther and Calvin both said to call to say that these are somehow to pick out from the middle of all this context in this historical grammatical context and say that these are about Satan or or about the fallen angels is kind of to do injustice or disservice. It's a bad hermeneutics. So, yeah, Brian. It does say, O Guardian Cherub. It does say, O Guardian Cherub, though. Yes, correct. Which is why, as much as Luther and Calvin want to, there's a, there's like, man, how can that not be? <laughs> yeah, David. But by the same hermeneutic, wouldn't we then say Isaiah 9 can't be about Jesus because of the surrounding historical context? Yeah, right. Exactly right. Because then you, you or... I'm sure they would. I'm sure Luther would, if he were here, would give you some big fancy reason as to why he thinks that one's okay and not Isaiah 14. But yes, I'm with you. Well, let's just for us 
to the point being that like when Isaiah prophesizes about, say, the virgin birth, there is also a historical grammatical context of the fact that he's also just talking about probably referring to his own son, that his wife is going to give birth to a child soon, um, and we're going to name him Emmanuel, and that there's going to be things that are going to happen to the kingdom before he's even old enough to walk and talk, right? Um, and that is true, but then the New Testament obviously takes uh, very clearly and obviously takes that prophecy and applies it to Jesus. So um, let's just humor Luther and Calvin here for a few moments and just say, like, if Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not refer to Satan, what are we left with? The truth is we're left with very, very little after that point. We would know that they exist. We would cert- There's plenty in Job, right? Um, and we certainly see all sorts of stories in Acts and the Gospels of demonic possession. So we know they're active. We know they're against Jesus and uh, his church and his work. And we know that they accuse and from the epistles, too, in the New Testament. We know that they're constantly trying to deceive us and tempt us and uh, lead people astray and work against God. But we know very little about their history. We would know very little about their fall, about why, what happened to them, so on and so forth. Right? We have very little. All we would know, really, the, at that point, the only thing left would be two places. Um, that in uh, Revelation 13, in which it talks about the dragon, right, which is John very clearly labels later on in John 13 as Satan. Uh, that the dragon that he rebels in heaven and he sweeps a third of the stars uh, with his tail and they all fall out of heaven. Okay, And that is pretty obviously, if you study it, that the stars refer to other angels. And so thus we get the notion that when the rebellion happened, that it was a third of the angels who fell. So two thirds stayed holy chose to remain loyal to God, one-third chose to follow Satan. So we have that, but it does, even there, it doesn't really say why, just as they do. Um, and then the other one is uh, really, really, uh, I'm, I'm typing it in so I can remember the actual, right, uh, Luke 10, which is almost a throwaway line when Jesus has sent out the 72 to go preach, and they come back with their report on how it went, and they... They're all excited because they're like, the demons are even, they're obeying us. We can cast them out of the people and they're listening to us because we invoke your name. And they go, and Jesus almost as just a sort of a bit of a quick aside explanation about why that's possible, says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But then he immediately moves on. (laughs) So that's all we got, right? So if we take away those two, that's all we would have. But. There are a lot of theologians besides Luther and Calvin who really do lean in and think that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 can be that dual kind of prophecy in which they have a historical context. The prophecy was was against the king of Tyre, but also has a bigger picture spiritual prophecy to it, component to it, um, just like the Emmanuel prophecy in that it can also be an oracle against Satan and against his followers. So from that, if we're, we're going to take that, we're going to roll with it. What Mark just read for us is that in verse 17, this is what we would kind of have to go on about why they fell. 
that Satan became proud of his beauty. He was created uh, as the most beautiful of all the angels, and he became proud of his beauty. And he became violent in verse 16. And it talks about, you can see in there about how he was in Eden and how he was covered in jewels, right? That was part of why he was so beautiful. Um, And that his power and his intelligence were so great, right? And possibly even all the angels, that their power and intelligence were so great that it was conceivable to them, wrongly, but conceivable, that they could replace God. Right? They at least convinced themselves that it was possible that they could replace God. Or, if we don't want to go quite that far, at least they would say that they wanted to have free will, they wanted to have no authority over them. And Burkhoff and others say that, you know, this seems like the most likely of the temptations to which the fallen angels succumbed because... Satan, that's also the angle he uses in the first temptation of humanity, right? That he appeals to Eve and to Adam a, a, a possible similar ambition, Burkhoff says, right? That they also would like to have no authority over them, perhaps. Did God really say? Right? Questioning him. Now, Before we leave the holy angels, let me just say that those who refused the temptation became confirmed in their position. Whatever the temptation was, they became confirmed in their position. They are now called holy. Right? There's almost this sense that only after of this great choosing moment did they become the holy angels. Um, And from that, Burkhoff and other theologians kind of extrapolate this idea that they enjoy perseverance, okay? That uh, God has given them the gift of perseverance just like he's given to uh, those of, uh, who are saved in such that there is no future fall of additional angels, okay? They are preserved and preserved for eternity. In fact, we are now encouraged to follow their example, In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6.10, he wraps it up with what? What's the last few words? Um, No, not the last few words. Um, First few words, right? Matthew um, 6.10. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who is doing God's will in heaven? The angels, right? It's the angels. They're the ones doing his will. So we're being encouraged, even in the Lord's Prayer, to follow their example. Now, the current state of the fallen angels, on the other hand, is kind of the reverse of preservation. There is no plan of salvation for them. They are confirmed damned. I already mentioned Revelation 12.4 about how it probably indicates this notion that it was one-third of their original total is the number of them who fell. And the thing is about their current state, and this is maybe one of the most important things for you to get because the world doesn't get this, is where are they right now? Where are Satan and the demons right now? Where can they go? Anybody? On earth and 
Heaven. They are not kicked out. They at least have the ability to go back for a visit, so to speak. Yes, Job makes that very clear. Satan is spending time, at least some time, in the throne room, and in the presence of God in which he is accusing us. Paul tells us that he accuses us day and night. Right? And it's Jesus who has to advocate for us on our behalf and say, yes, but. <laughs> Essentially, that's the defense. The defense of Jesus is, yes, they did do all those sins, but I paid for them. My blood pleads on their behalf, right? Pleads their innocence. So they are present on earth and at least sometimes in God's throne room. Where are they not? Hell. Right now, in their current state, they are not in hell. And that's probably the most, like, the mythology around angels and demons, the most popular mythology of it is that hell is where the angels are, I'm sorry, where the demons are hanging out right now, and they rule over it, or they have a party down there, or something, and they're torturing all the people who've gone down to hell. Thank you, Dante. Right? No! The Bible tells us that hell was created for Satan and his demons. That is not going to be the place where they're having a good time. It is not going to be the place where they are in charge in any way, shape, or form. It is going to be the place where they are going to be eternally punished, just as the unsaved, those who never repent and follow Christ, will be eternally punished. Okay? It is not going to be a party for them down in hell. They do not want to go. They are, in fact, all of their activity you can almost now can basically be seen through that lens of them kicking and screaming and railing against what they know to be their future. And they're just trying to get whatever they can get before that happens. They are completely fallen and desperately evil. Right? Um, and by the way, they're not just present on earth, but also ruling. Satan is referred to as the prince of the air, the prince of this world. And remember that when, in the two gospel accounts, when uh, Satan uh, takes, or when Jesus is out in the desert, and Satan comes and tempts him directly in the desert, it features this one offer, one of the temptations is Satan offers to give him all the kingdoms of the earth. And please note that in that temptation, in his response to that temptation, Jesus does not refute that he has that ability. He doesn't say, you're lying, you can't give me the kingdoms. He says, no, I'm supposed to worship God and him only. That's his correct response, and that is the right response. But it's true, Satan could have. Otherwise, if he couldn't, what would that, that wouldn't have been a temptation. Right? The idea was... What Satan's idea was, was Jesus, you are supposed to eventually end up with all the kingdoms. We know that. You and I both know that. You're going to end up ruling. But uh, in order to do that, you're going to have to go through this horrific, you're going to have to live amongst all these people for another few years. You're going to have to put up with all their garbage. And then you're going to have to die this horrific, torturous death. And you're God. And how can you even think about dying, right? Like, or go through such thing. Let me give you a shortcut. Why don't we just go straight to the part where you're in charge of all the kingdoms of the earth? Right? That's the temptation. So he's anyway. So 
Satan has, he's ruling. He has ownership of the kingdoms of the earth now. All right. So we talked about the timeline a little bit. Do you remember last time? And I said, when were angels created? All angels. Do you remember? But just like within Genesis bounds. What, what, what? Between day zero and day three, right? Like on day one or the moment of the initial moment of day one and day three, right? Because, and we can say day three, do you remember why? Uh, because day three is when the land, God makes the dry land, and there are verses uh, in Job and Psalms talking about the chorus singing as God establishes the foundations of the earth and, and sets the land and, and bounds the oceans and whatnot, okay? So... That could also just mean day one, but at the, very, the latest it could possibly mean is day three. So we're going to put them in somewhere in there. Okay. So, and if the fall, if I just said we didn't, there's only been one creation of angels, only one fall of angels. So all the fallen angels were also created during that time as well. When did they fall is an interesting question. Can we put within the context of Genesis, can we put some bounds on when they fall? Maybe a minimum. Brian? I would say less, less than a week. Less than a week, okay. <laughs> the reason for that is because Satan would have fallen before Adam. Okay, that is true. And Adam would have had to be responsible to be obedient to the Lord. Yes. Instantly. Yes. Right? Procreate, have to be on the earth. And the moment that he stopped doing that, probably pretty quickly. Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. I like where you're tracking with that. So... Earliest he could have possibly fallen is what? Dave? Day seven or eight, yeah, because what happens on day six? Very good. God looks at all that he has created, all, which should include the angels, and it was very good. Okay, so on day six, at the end of day six at least, everything was very good. No fall yet. Okay? Um, and just as Brian said, because he saw my notes, um, probably not too long after that, right? Because Genesis 1.28 commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if they weren't doing that, then they would have been sinning, okay? Now, yes, they were perfect people, da, da, da. does that mean that she should have gotten pregnant right off the bat? I don't know, right? Like, the, the, the Bible is certainly full of all sorts of situations in which God closes the womb, opens the womb, da-da-da. It could very well have just been that they could have lived for months or years, or we don't really know in Bliss and Eden where he just sim- God simply just did not allow Eve to become pregnant, right? But we do know for sure that Eve did not become pregnant until after the fall. If she was pregnant before the fall, we've got all sorts of theological problems. So we're, we can be definitive about that too, right? All descendants of Adam created, were born after the fall, that way they all inherit original sin. Um, but, so somewhere in that zone, right, is where we can say. Uh, the demons fell after Satan, okay? that There was Satan and then the demons fell. They, he, we know that the uh, Bible talks about Satan as the author of sin, uh, and then also that Verse in Revelation that that reference in Revelation I mentioned Revelation 12 about him being the dragon and then sweeping the third of the stars out of the sky. We get this sense that um, you know that he fell first and then the others followed 
after him. Okay? All right. I already covered that. Okay, so um, so that was question eight, right? That the earliest the day demons and Satan could have fallen would be day seven, because we know that day six we're told uh, that he uh, all was very good. All right, so last time we talked about the fourfold mission of angels, and interestingly, there's a fourfold anti-mission of demons, okay, in verse and that's, uh, sorry, question number nine on the worksheet, right, as we finally get into filling out the rest of this worksheet. What is the fourfold anti-mission or anti-ministry of demons? All right, number one is deception. Deception. First Timothy 4.1 tells us that they are the source and inspiration for many, maybe most, maybe all, false teaching. Okay, I didn't. I I kind of wanted to say to you all, <laughs> but I wanted to leave open the possibility that certainly false teaching that man. I think man is wicked enough to come up with our own false teaching without demon help. But um, yeah, but First Timothy clearly tells us. Paul clearly tells Timothy that uh, that they are the source and inspiration for at least much false teaching. Their primary goal is to, in this ministry, is anti-ministry, is to turn people away from the truth. They are the ravens eating the seed in that parable uh, of the sower, right? The seed in the sower. When Jesus talks about the, the someone, the farmer casting the seed and it falls on the wayside and then the ravens come and scoop it up and eat it, right? That's them. They're the ravens. Most, I would say, the consensus amongst modern theologians, even reformed theolo- Reformation time theologians, is that every false religion has a demon or demons working together as its fount. Okay? That every one. And my personal opinion, to kind of put an even more modern spin on this, is that I believe that they are behind many of the unexplained phenomenon of modern times, and even UFOs, all right? Now, I know, not to get too geeked out on you all, but there's a lot of people, there's a lot of UFO kooks out there who read Ezekiel, the early parts of Ezekiel, and they say, Ezekiel saw a UFO. Like, they're like, that sounds just like a UFO. There's, like, spinning wheels and bright lights, and they're floating around, and that's just like when people describe UFOs. And I say to that, no, I'm going to flip that around on you, (laughs) Uh, that what Ezekiel saw were angels, and that what you're seeing now, when you think you're seeing UFOs, are also a certain kind of angel, right? Um, And so... uh, that that I think is uh, that they're they're behind much of that because any of that stuff and all of that stuff and especially false religions obviously all are a distraction. They all are to lead you astray, to get you thinking about other things, to blow hole, try to blow holes in God's truth and God's theology and uh, and His message. Right. All right. So it's all deception. Number two, possession. Possession. There are numerous examples, can't deny it, in the Bible of them being able to control the bodies, minds, and or hearts of unbelievers. 
Okay. Now the good news I have for you is that it, they are unable to possess believers. And I can say that definitively. They are unable to possess true believers. Why? Because we're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. That is right. Correct. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and it would be impossible for a demon and the Holy Spirit to occupy that same space. You can imagine how quickly the demon would be blasted right out of there if they tried. Right? So while possession is a real thing and really happens, um, and uh, probably still happens even to this day, it is not something that you, a, a believer, need to worry about happening to you. You do not need to fear that. And I've met people who do fear that or who then, when they fall into some kind of sin or temptation, or particularly like, like a long season of it, they want to, they've, with their very poor theology, wanted to blame it on the idea that they were being uh, possessed by a demon, the demon is the one who did it, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Number three, attack. Attack. They are the root of many, again, I'm not going to say most or all, but many evil occurrences in the world, okay, in this life. They are the root, the power behind many evil occurrences. And the reason I'm going to say many is just like false teaching, I'd say that people don't need a demonic influence in order to do bad things. <laughs> they are perfectly capable of doing bad things all on their own. And also, remember that the Bible never excuses people for following demonic leading either. Right? So even if that is true, it doesn't mean that they get some kind of pass for what they have done. And all the blame falls only on the demons. Yes, Dave. I'm curious as to whether you think that they could control like the weather at all. Like, does God let them do bad weather things, or is it all bad weather kind of? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, medieval theologians in particular, and I think really all the, and I think up until the point where we meteorology became a well-studied science, um, they. They took the title of him being the prince of the air and turned that into the notion that he was in control of the weather, that Satan was the one in control of the weather. Um, I personally don't love that because I think that ascribes way too much power, like near omnipotence to him that I just don't think he has. Um, I think it's possible that he could do something and influence something. And I even think that he, he and the demons are capable of the miraculous, right, um, of making things happen that will go against natural law. Uh, so, again, as part of their deception. But they can only do it when God allows them, permits them to do it. Yeah, Brian. I was going to uh, quote Pastor Mike who says, uh, the Bible never says it rained. It always says God sent the rain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God, the Bible never says it rained. It always says God sent the rain, right? And it never says Satan sent the rain. <laughs> so, yeah. Weather has no intent. It's only bad in relation to our experience. Also correct. Yes, Taylor, I love that. Yes. Weather does not have intent. It does not have moral. <laughs> right? Um, 
it's really only our relation, our reaction, what it, what it does to us, right, that is bad or good. And in fact, you know, we, we can complain about when it rains because it's ruining our plans, but we should be really, but we really needed that rain or the plants really needed it or the, you know, all sorts of things really needed it. So, um, we shouldn't really complain of it. Okay. Um, so they, uh, and then number four, right? I didn't do number four yet. Number four, accusation. Accusation. Uh, and especially, of course, this is the ministry, anti-ministry of Satan himself, whose very name means accuser. Okay, accuser. By the way, um, who here knows the supposed other name, like Satan's other name, or original name? Lucifer, right? Lucifer. Do you know where that comes from? Yeah, okay, that's another. But where does Lucifer come from? Anybody know? Huh? The word light, yeah. It, well, so it comes from, it, it means morning star. Uh, and it comes from Isaiah 14. Um, so, but the thing is, it's just a word that means morning star. And there's really, even if we go with the Isaiah 14 does refer to Satan, it doesn't really use the term as his name. Right. So we're really stretching things to say that Lucifer is his name or was his name beforehand. The Bible completely always only refers to him as the accuser. Okay, so his name, his very name means the accuser. Uh, uh, In fact, in the Hebrew, he's almost always called like if you really look at the Hebrew, it's the Satan is how he's spoken of. Not just Satan. He is the Satan. He is the accuser. Because um, again, it's his title rather than his actual name, um, and and what's going on is just what we see in Job. Okay, what what we see happening in the early chapters of Job, the New Testament reveals to us is happening all the time. Especially in Hebrews, we hear about how the Satan is doing the same thing to us all the time, um, uh, to all potentially all believers, right, or at least any ones that come under his notice. Okay, that accusing, uh, railing uh, against us, accusing us directly, perhaps um, uh, the demons might also be where they are trying to, you know, sort of whisper into our conscience accusations against us, uh, where we ourselves would question our salvation or our belief or our commitment to the Lord, right, all that kind of stuff. Um, and... Ultimately, it is Jesus who is our advocate and our defense to his accusations. And as I already said, he does not defend us on our merits, of course, but on the merit of his own work on our behalf. Okay. So, James Boyce asks, why does God tell us so much about angels and even especially fallen angels? Why do we need to know? What is God's warning to us? And he puts it, I think, pretty starkly. He says, what we, God's warning to us is there is a war going on. And it's a war that we cannot see, but we can very much feel the effects of. And we have a host of spiritual enemies that are always set against us and always working to undermine us, damage us, or straight up kill us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 warns us not to be ignorant of Satan's 
tricks and schemes, right, of his devices, the KJV used the term. Okay, but basically we could say his tricks and his schemes, or uh, since it's football season, uh, his playbook. Okay, his playbook. Starting with, by the way, his very appearance, because he is no horned half goat. Okay, nor is he some slick-coated, trench-coated thriller man, right? Like, I think the modern TV shows, that's how they like to portray Satan now, right? He's like this man in black, he's got the big, long trench coat, slick back hair, sunglasses or something like that, right? Like, he's not that cool dude either, okay? He is, there's, the, the Bible doesn't really, I mean, and the way Paul talks about it, I don't think his image changed when he fell. He's still the same gorgeous, beautiful, bright angel he always was. In appearance. And remember, when John sees angels, remember from last week, when John sees an angel in Revelation, what's his first temptation? What does he do? He drops to the ground to try to worship him. So what do you think unbelievers do if Satan appears to them? In all his beauty and splendor. Only Satan will not stop them. <laughs> right? The holy angel said, no, no, wait, 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 don't worship me, worship God. Satan soaks it all up. Right? So to think of him as the goat guy, horned goat guy cartoon, right, of, of college mascots everywhere... Um, or, uh, you know, or, or Looney Tunes cartoons, and Far Side cartoons, right? To think of them as that, or as, you know, one of the agents from the Matrix, like, to think of them as either of those is really to discount him and give him the advantage. It's what he wants you to think. So we not be ignorant, we are warned, of his tricks and his schemes. All right, so our proper response, to wrap it up, to what God has revealed about demons, is A, do not underestimate Satan and the demons. All right? Do not underestimate them. Matthew 6.13, in the Lord's Prayer itself, the prayer that God, that Jesus tells us to model all of our prayers after, He tells us to pray not to be led into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? Do not underestimate him. You do not want to be delivered into his hands. But B, do not overestimate Satan and his demons either. Okay? Do not overestimate them. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. The devil didn't always make you do it. It's impossible for him. Okay, so don't overestimate them either. Not everything that bad that happens to you is because a demon was attacking you. Sometimes it's just your own dumb sin that puts you in that situation. Okay. Number three, recognize that two-thirds of the angels are still on our side, and they also are mighty. 
They are mighty in battle. God tells us a whole lot about how mighty his host is. And I think he wants us to know that too, to know like one, hey, good news, we outnumber them. It's two-third to one-third. And two, we're mighty. I've got a really big army on my side fighting in this war for you. Okay? Number uh, D. Number D. Um, do not blame Satan and the demons for your sin. Okay? Do not blame them. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has come to you that is not common to all men, and none that you, God has not made a way of escape for you. So even if Satan himself, which I hope is not true, but even if Satan himself did ever decide that you were worth his time to come to tempt you directly, even that temptation, God promises that there is a way out for you. Okay? There is a way out. You do not, you can escape. You don't, you can't blame him. And then finally, E, please take comfort in the promise of their final judgment. The book that uh, we gave the teens from Nielsen makes a lot. Nielsen makes a lot about this. We ought to take great comfort in the in the notion and the remembrance that while they might have a lot and they might be causing a lot of trouble now and might be a real problem for the church and antagonists to God now, they're low. Their doom is sure, <laughs> as Luther put it in his great hymn. All right. Any last thoughts or questions about angels? Something I didn't cover? Brian? So you mentioned that uh, Satan and the angels, all angels are not in hell right now. Yeah. But scripture clearly teaches that there are people that are in hell right now. Yes. So are we saying that there's people in hell, but angels are not? And since people die, and then comes judgment. Yes. Angels don't die. But there's still judgment. Yes, there's still, yeah, that's right, yes. Um, there is this strange reference in Peter, First Peter, in which Peter talks about spirits in prison. And I won't get into it today. If you want to come talk to me afterwards, I'll come talk to you. The, the, the theologians are all over the map on this one as to whether or not those spirits in prison refer to demons or just to other, or to people who are already, uh, in hell. Uh, but it's possible, anyway, that that could refer to some small subset of demons who have already been imprisoned in hell because their crimes were so heinous. Um, but, uh, yeah, but otherwise, no, they're not in hell today. Okay. All right. Great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of hosts. And you do indeed have an army mighty in battle uh, that uh, you have ordained to be fighting on our side throughout this whole church age. And we look to you, Lord, in celebration and, in, and are comforted in the knowledge that your angels are constantly there to minister to us. And as we learned last week, that because we have gathered here, even now they are in our midst in observing this very gathering. Uh, and uh, Lord, we thank you for their ministry to us and all the forms that it might take. And certainly you've not, uh, it's a mystery to us much of what they do for us, but we are comforted knowing that they are doing 
things for us at your command, and that they are indeed mighty. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, Lord, from Satan and from his demons, from their attacks, from their deception, from their accusations. Thank you that uh, your son continues to plead on our behalf through his great finished work on the cross. And in his resurrection, we know uh, that he lives again to be our defender uh, and to see us through uh, safely into heaven someday to live with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.